0: Welcome to Episode 21 of the Tech Done Right Podcast, Table TableXI's podcast about building better software, careers, companies, and communities. I'm Noel Rappin. If you like the podcast and want to help other people find it, we would really appreciate that, and the best way to do that is to please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to be notified when new episodes are released, or if you'd just like to get in touch with us, probably the best way to do that is to follow us on Twitter at tech underscore done underscore right. To learn about past episodes or leave comments, you can find us online at techdenright.io. We really love hearing from you. Today on the show, I'm talking to Betsy Hable, a software engineer who got her start as a theatrical set designer. We're going to talk about how set design can inform software architecture and about how the various constraints and communication needs of one field can inform the other. I love a good theater metaphor, and this one comes with some practical advice for running software teams. Betsy, do you want to tell everybody who you are?
1: Yeah, I'm Betsy. I used to work as a set designer and as a scenic artist, which is a fancy way of saying the person who paints the sets. Before I did tech, I've been a software engineer for going on a decade now and recently um, co-founded my own consultancy, Cohere.
0: Right, and we're actually here to talk about the intersection of the set design career and the tech career. So maybe we could start by explaining what kinds of decisions and what kinds of creative work you do as a set designer and then go from there.
1: Yeah. So the joke I always make about the crossover there is that my work as a set designer and as a general backstage worker was about 20% artistic decisions and about 80% negotiating with, directors to figure out a way to communicate their artistic vision that was on budget and physically possible. And like usually people make the parallel with product managers for me, and I don't need to do that. But there's deeper parallels that go beyond that joke about soft skills, I think. And those are what I'm most interested in talking about today.
0: Yeah, I, I'm familiar with, like, I love a good theater metaphor. Uh, yeah, yeah. Theater's a metaphor. Theater is a great metaphor for a lot of things because it has a lot of people collaborating together and it's not competitive normally. I mean, it's not, like, not competitive the way sports are. But normally I'm used to thinking of set design and that kind of stuff as metaphors for user interface design. But that's not the kind of thing you want to talk about it as, correct?
1: No. Um, so when you're a set designer – What you're doing is literally shaping the space that people move through. I think it's easy to think about set design as about like, oh, you painted the backdrops, like you, you drew pretty pictures and that's part of it, right? Like, There are some backdrops that I have painted that are very pretty and I'm very proud of them. But the important part, it turns out, once you get really into it, isn't about the skin of it. I hate going back to something that would make sense as a user interface metaphor, but just as the colors you pick for a user interface aren't the core of the UX, the real part of set design is the way that the scenery is arranged in a space. Um, One of my favorite examples here is a production of The Merry Widow that I worked on that one of my mentors designed. And the reason it's one of my favorite examples is that there was this long promenade uh, at the back of the stage such that the only two ways for people to enter or exit were entering along the Grand Promenade and announcing themselves and being very public about the fact that they were making this movement on stage or kind of skulking in like through the sidelines and that makes it really explicit when the director is blocking the show later is um, setting up the specific paths that the actors are supposed to take and saying you're going to hear when you give this speech you're going to then exit through the wings using that exit having really defined spaces to move through means that the movements the director is setting when they block the show means specific things contextually. Um, Another really great example I like to use is Man of La Mancha, which is one of my favorite musicals ever. Almost every production of Man of La Mancha has a high catwalk that surrounds the stage. The play is a show within a show and the kind of frame story takes place within a prison And it's really important that you feel during the entire time that, yes, even if we're telling this magical fantasy story within the prison, we're in a prison the entire time, that the guards are looming menacingly and like looking down on the prisoners, that when Cervantes leaves at the end, it's ambiguous as to whether he's climbing up into some kind of heaven or not. And you can't do that if you haven't set up the space to enable those kinds of artistic choices.
0: So set design makes concrete certain kinds of design decisions, certain kinds of things that might otherwise be subtextual or might be implied. It has the possibility of making them very physically concrete in the way that the performers move across the stage.
1: Yes, exactly. And the thing I really like about that as a metaphor for what we do as software engineers is that that aspect of the design literally has no meaning without the actors on it, right? Like, the fact that you did the scenery for Stuart Little, like a kind of kids book style that exists even without the actors, it's cute, it's nice, whatever. But the fact that you did the scenery for this particular production of Stuart Little in a way that let the actors move the um, wagons, the bits of scenery that are movable, around to rearrange the space so that it was playful, that's something that only exists once you actually have people working in the space. And so I really like that as a metaphor for grander software architectures, because For a software architecture to be meaningful, it can't just be, oh, we're going to use model view controller for this. It can't just be, we're going to use functional service objects for this part of our business logic. It has to be interpreted in the context of how the actual implementing engineers are implementing things.
0: So the design choices you made as a software architect, you are making them in a way so as to like meaningfully constrain the activities of the engineers who are working on it. You have a vision for how they should move, how data should move, how workflows should move, and you are structuring the design of the code to make that explicit. Is that a fair way of expressing the metaphor? How did you come to be in an architect position where you started thinking, hey, this feels a lot like set design?
1: Well, how I came to be in an architect position is entirely accidental Um, because I was interviewing for a lead engineering position at a startup. And the person was interviewing me who was also a lead engineer there. The idea was that we would split lead engineering roles, the role in half, and each take charge of a different section of the app. He kept on reassuring me that no, my title was going to be architect, but he didn't mean it like that. He meant it as like a pairing role and a guidance role. And then I got the job and it quickly became clear that that just wasn't workable. You can have ideals about, oh, I'm going to the kind of lead engineer who's very hands off and like gently mentors and guides, but you can't gently mentor and guide a dozen people, or as it was eventually 30 people, one-on-one with very meaningful pairing sessions every day. It's not scalable. There's only one human in here. And so what I needed to do was I needed to find an interpretation of software architecture as a path that still fit in with my values about bottom-up design and empowering the creativity of line engineers, because I think everyone has this stereotype in their head about some horrible waterfall engineer from the bad old days, right? The person who draws a bunch of unrealistic diagrams and then you have to write Java to in this exact very precise class structure, whether or not that class structure works in practice. And I was terrified of being that to someone of doing that to someone.
0: Yeah. Or, or in some cases you built all the code and then you drew up the architecture diagram and pretended it happened the other way around.
1: Right. And that just doesn't seem, that's not adding any value to the process.
0: That's actually a strange theater metaphor. (laughs) (laughs) The actors come together, they build a set and then everyone goes home.
1: Right. Right. that doesn't,
0: that doesn't quite work. Yeah. It's funny. You make me think of this, like, one of the first things I ever learned about being in a leadership role in any context was uh, when I was actually I was directing a one act play in college uh-huh. and I was convinced I was going to be the cool director, I was going to let the actors collaborate on all the choices we were going to be in this together and about a week or so in, I asked a friend of mine who was in the cast like, "How am I doing?" And he was like, "Yeah, Noel, I think you're doing great, but we'd really like it if you direct sometimes like <laughs>
1: Right, I'm laughing behind my hand because you need a strong central spine in these kinds of situations, otherwise everyone's looking to each other into the ether, and no one or worse, the loudest person in the room takes charge
0: yeah, i and and i and I, like i I completely understand the the kind of tension that you feel between like you want to have this collaborative environment you want people to feel like their creativity is, is respected and you need people to have their creativity respected because everybody's creativity is important on a collaborative project. But yet at the same time, the projects often go so much better if there is a clear vision that, you know, one person is sort of in charge of curating,
1: mm-hmm.
0: I guess it might be the best word. And yeah, I like that. I think about that. I, I think about that random conversation I had with my friend like twice a month. mm mm-hmm. In, in the context of the things that I do now, we have like architect as this ill-defined, as a, like a very well-defined term outside of software, and a somewhat ill-defined term inside of software. And we're we're drawing all of these metaphors between various different kinds of design. Like, are there other dimensions to the metaphor, or other kinds of work that can participate in this metaphor?
1: Well, one of the things that I really like about this metaphor specifically, um, now that I've thought of it is the way it emphasizes continuous collaboration and feedback loops. Um, Admittedly, I've never worked in a traditional construction environment, and perhaps I'm stereotyping, but the received wisdom we kind of get from that very traditional architecture metaphor, right, is there's a long planning process, and the architect is the well-paid genius who just makes all things go, and there's a lot of, like, great man theory nonsense, um, all wrapped up in that, that I don't want to unpack, but think is really gross. And then all of the builders execute the plans as faithfully as possible. And, you know, that's fine in the context of a real physical building, because if you don't do that with a real physical building, then the real physical building falls down and kills a lot of people. And that's not desirable. But
0: it's much harder to refactor a wall. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's not impossible,
1: right? Not impossible. Um, And people do things with that after the fact, right? But that's, like, people in software do the best they can with inflexible legacy designs and move around what they can and work within those constraints. Like, no building ever stays the way its original architect planned it to be. But it's a process that emphasizes guessing what people will want, guessing what people will be able to work effectively within up front, because ultimately, you need a very strong, well-engineered plan if you want the building to stay up. And I don't think that that's true in most software applications. And in set design, you're still constrained by physical reality, right? Like, you're building much smaller structures, but they still do need to have structural integrity. See above. Be about the 80% of the job being negotiating with directors to make sure actors stay safe.
0: Right. Otherwise, you have Spider-Man. Turn off the dark. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Turn off the dark. Yeah. Oh my God. No. Uh, there was definitely whenever I use that, I flashback to a show I stage managed, and there was a need for a flying entrance, and. There was no way to make the harness that we had for this actress as she was flying in look like anything other than a diaper and that was not good because she was supposed to be like coming in like this ninja avenging angel very spy and then go and beat up someone and trying to figure out like a way to hide the very diaper like harness during her flying entrance would actually looked cool was this hell of a challenge and like there was no way around it. Right. We could not change the structural elements of the harness because otherwise we would kill Michelle and we really didn't want to kill Michelle.
0: Right. Cause that, yeah. Among other things that makes the next show much harder to put on. Right. Yeah. So set, you know, set design is an interesting metaphor here because the things do have to be structural, have to have the structural integrity of a building building, but they also have a flex, they need to have a flexibility. They often need to have a flexibility that is to me in my head, like much more like software than like a building, like pieces of set need to move. They need to get often need to get on stage and off stage. They often need to be carried by actors. I'm a total sucker for theater where, where uh, (laughs) the actors move set pieces around, uh, which has nothing to do with anything. I just like saying it. How does this change the way that you approach software architecture or software design? Like what would you say somebody listening to this is like, okay, I'm, I, I'm thinking about software design, as set design, like how would I do that? Like what, what, what does it change in the way that you approach the practice?
1: Well, one of the biggest things is, and this is like very agile doctrine, but it's important. So I'll repeat, so like I'll frame it this way, is the importance of paying attention to the way the design is actually being used like in a traditional building you design it you build it people move in and the architect has left the project by that point right like people are moving furniture and like saying i don't like that closet where it is i'm going to move it to the other end of the room and all of that but it's totally after the phase where the architect has been on the project and Instead, in set design, there's a rehearsal, there's this whole long rehearsal process in which you're getting constant feedback. Like, set design is somewhat unique among the theater disciplines in that a large part of the design is completed before the actors go into rehearsal. Again, because you need to have the spaces the actors are going to be moving through before you block the actors. You need to be able to tape out where the large set pieces are in the rehearsal space so that people know I'm not going to be able to walk into this um, while they're rehearsing. And you need to also start building the actual scenery. But there's wiggle room, right? Like, you can't... There usually isn't budget or time budget to do, like, super intense rework, but things like, oh, this, set, this movable set piece which, thank God, is movable, will live much better on this side of the stage during this scene. That's a flexible thing, and that's something that you can figure out during the rehearsal process.
0: Is it something that you design for, too? Like, do you design for a certain amount of flexibility? Absolutely. The way that we might talk about it in software in software design, keeping our design open, you know, is there an analogous process?
1: Absolutely. And that part's easier in plays where you're going for a very aggressive modernist aesthetic. Like one of the...
0: Which means sort of minimalistic and...
1: Minimalistic or also abstract. Like the play I'm thinking of here is a play called On the Verge. Um, One of the traditional ways that the sets for that can be designed is, and this is really difficult to express via audio, but it looks really cool, is there'll be mirrors across the back of the stage and billowing pieces of fabric, like on pulleys. And those kind of get manipulated to form things like mountains and et cetera during the show. So things like that, these very hyper-abstract sets that are actively manipulated, that gives you a lot of room to play with the shapes you're actually making, during the rehearsal period, but even in a more traditional kind of thing, right? You're going to have often a lot of literal moving pieces. For example, the production of Stuart Little that I did, um, that I alluded to earlier, the design was three wagons, three moving set pieces that contained New York skyscrapers on one side and um, scenes from the countryside on the back. And those would move across, move around this kind of triangular stage area. And there was also a background with more skyscrapers. And so what we could do was just rearrange at it arbitrarily at any given point. The important parts of it, the fact that the skyscrapers were way, way taller than any of the kids who were attending, and therefore would make them go, oh, this is very big and the big reveal when we went into the countryside and oh, they spin around and you can see like trees on them and stuff. Um, those parts would remain constant, and those parts we needed to make a decision on fairly early in the process so that we could build the scenery. But because it was designed as a set with a lot of moving parts, there was a lot of room for us to play around with what that was. Um, there's a phase toward the end of any theater rehearsal process called technical rehearsals which is where all of the designers are present
0: yeah they're long usually yeah yeah
1: yeah (laughs) and it's really boring as a set designer right like the lighting designers working pretty much constantly during those 10-hour rehearsals but you're just kind of sitting there taking notes on oh that actually kind of works Oh, that's ugly. We need to fix that. But there's also in between every scene, you're like walking up to the director and negotiating and like physically moving things across the stage while the director goes, "No, I, I like it better here," and you go, "But this," and so you're very. You're collaborating with the pieces you have. You can't change the pieces you have very much at that point, uh, usually because um, you're also like running behind on the build of the scenery. And so one of the things you're figuring out while you're sitting there taking those copious notes is what things from your vision you can practically cut to... Um, get the scope to something that will actually be "quote unquote" finished when the play opens. Like, like I said, the software metaphor is just kind of fall out of this very naturally.
0: <laughs> it sounds very much like a beta test and 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 load test and all of the things that you need to do. I want to stay away from the UI metaphor, but it definitely feels like. The way you, you you check out, and in this case, you know if we're talking about more of the architecture metaphor, the way that the software becomes is or isn't modifiable as new change requests come in as a test of the architecture.
1: Right, exactly.
0: You know, the, the show that actually keeps bouncing through my head is the relatively recent Broadway revival of falsettos, which they filmed and was in movie theaters over the summer.
1: Oh my god, how did I miss that?
0: The set, that's okay, it'll be on it'll be on PBS sometimes. Good. So. The set was essentially a bunch of basically like foam blocks that started mm-hmm. off in a cube that the performers would continually take out and rearrange into chairs and tables and couches and whatever and would occasionally bring back together to, for more abstract effects, but it is actually a very very nice effect at the end that they do out of it. That comes out of nowhere. But that strikes me as being particularly software-like in that they're literally moving blocks around (laughs) in different configurations to get different functionality and to reset the area that they're working in. That feels like particularly metaphorically apt to me. I, I just keep flashing on it as we're talking.
1: Yeah. And one of the things that that makes me think of is the way that Even a very aggressively flexible design, one that's designed to give you as much to modify as you can as you're building the software or rehearsing the play, that's not the absence of a design, right? That's a design that's optimizing for flexibility,
0: Right. And one of the things about that kind of flexibility that would be true in both a set and a software context is it opens you up to a lot more potential decisions. Like if you have big, chunky set pieces, like there's relatively few amount of things you can do with them. But if your set is a bunch of basically foam blocks, there's an almost infinite amount of fiddling that you can do.
1: Right. And so – what happens in those circumstances is that that forces the director to make the same spatial decisions that otherwise the set designer would be making in concert with director anyway. One of my favorite shows I've ever worked on, um, I didn't do the set for because the set was two chairs, like literally two folding chairs. And so crediting anyone as the set designer would be very silly, but that was still a set design, right? And even though those two folding chairs could move anywhere in the playing space during the show, in practice, there were a few points that the chairs kept on returning to.
0: We might call them patterns.
1: Patterns, exactly, right? Just because you could do anything didn't mean it made sense to do everything. The audience still isn't going to be able to, like the audience's subconscious isn't going to react well to a show in which the actors are just all over the place and there's no thematic resonance to the fact that oh, they're standing in the same place for the scene that they were in that other scene, because they're not. There's no spaces that have particular thema- built up thematic resonances to them. And so the director in that show needed to do a lot to actively shape the space, even though there wasn't scenery in the way forcing them to make those decisions.
0: Right. That's harder. I, I, I It's been a really long time since I, I actively did theater, although I miss it tremendously. But I, I have done a couple of directing those kinds of things and I did direct a one-act show in college or high school that was basically just a bench but there is a design there so though because you're you, you have to come up with things like okay stepping forward means this stepping to the side means this this side means this because otherwise it's just madness like people go right, in, right? and you, you kind of build up a grammar of the way uh, space is used and and again you know metaphorically in back to the software like the, the relationships between the pieces of your the the, the blocks of your design the modules the, the different applications the relationship between them you have to make some specification as to what those interactions mean and what those pieces mean because otherwise anybody can do anything and you have chaos
1: right and that can be fine for like small teams or even on personal software because you know what all the different pieces of the chaos mean. But once people actually start working on your stuff, then it's a different story. One of the things that I thought really, really firmly as like an article of Doctrine before I started doing software architecture work was that all designs needed to emerge like organically and things like that. And then I started actually being in a position of technical leadership and the things about, okay, the differences between this style of presenter object and this other style of presenter object that I'd previously dismissed as not useful because this it all emerged organically in these broad ideals were suddenly things I needed to do to communicate to people what the structures here were. It wasn't about finding the best structure which usually doesn't even exist it was about deciding okay but here is the structure we are using and communicating that out to people so that everyone could follow that structure
0: yeah i find that there's two kinds of things like organic emergent design can happen but it's kind of risky and it takes a long time and that sometimes like you're saying with like presenter objects the the differences between the best and the second best are swamped by the differences between picking one and going for it Right. And running around in circles for two weeks. You know, I, one thing that I was thinking about um, that I think you, you almost certainly can speak to better than I can is like, what are the differences in scaling between working on in a in a set design in a small environment versus in a a larger, you know, an environment where there are more people. Like, does that have anything to speak to the way that teams scale in software design?
1: Oh, absolutely. Like, so there are a lot of different set design practices that can happen, right? Like one of, like there was a show I worked on at one point, um, Tent of Dreams, where the design meeting and most of the actual design emerged where over like the director and I went to Five Guys and then we went to the Home Depot across the street from the Five Guys and we wandered through the halls of the Home Depot and pointed at things and went, yes, I like that. No, I don't like that. And when we were done with that, like two hour trip, we had a bunch of PVC piping and some rope and I knew what I was going to do with all of those things. Plus the cardboard we were going to scavenge later. This was about the Occupy movement. So this actually makes a lot of sense. (laughs) Um, And that worked for that show because it was a show about the Occupy movement and so wanted a very aggressively scrappy aesthetic. But it also worked for that show because it was a show that was being produced by a company of like 10 people overall. And I was the set designer and also the person like responsible for building the set and doing all of the painting and decoration, of which there really wasn't much, um, because you're probably getting an impression about our budget um, from this process I'm describing, and that impression would be very accurate.
0: I think the phrase scavenged cardboard definitely, <laughs> definitely, <laughs> definitely set a tone there. Yeah,
1: And that kind of very fluid give-and-take process Works when establishing the design can fundamentally be about a conversation between you and your director because your director needs to understand where things are going to be and you need to understand what the pieces you're building are. And then you go off and you build them and you don't need to do much further communication because it's all in your head and your director's head. But once you start bringing in more people, like a lot more people, then all of a sudden it becomes much more important to have that upfront planning to do full drafted out blueprints of every set piece, possibly with exploded views and or alternate isometric views. I'm flashing back now to the time I made the mistake of designing something that had a raked surface with a curved edge because trying to hand-draft that in isometric...
0: I'll translate the lingo there. A raked surface means it was angled.
1: Right. Tilted, yeah. Not a flat surface. Yeah. Um, and it had a curved edge. And so there really wasn't any way to like let the construction shop know what the hell was going on short of like having all of these different views that were very hard to project out in a hand draft form because this was like still two or three years before CAD software beat was a thing in the theater world. Like even a decade ago, we were still basically hand drawing all of our blueprints. So
0: the interesting thing to me about that is that you do have all of these diagrams and you have all of this added structure and ceremony, but they're all there for a reason. Like, there's a specific communication reason why you need to do a blueprint, like because somebody else is actually going to build this and they need to know precisely what you want. And to me, I think that that a lot of times what goes wrong in ceremony in software projects is you do all of these things for no real reason, just because somebody thinks that you should. And that if you start thinking about the communication needs of the documentation you're producing, of the diagrams you're writing, of the planning documents you're creating, um, then you have a much better chance of doing the right amount of stuff and not spending time on communication artifacts that that will never get used.
1: Right, because communication artifacts need to be about communication first and foremost. (laughs) Um, And the right level of communication is very dependent on team. And I'm not just talking about scale here when I talk about that a team that skews more toward junior developers who want and need a lot of guidance is going to require a more intense planning process, more detailed ticket breakdowns, more implementation guidelines in those tickets than a team that's largely composed of ordinary senior developers. Then the correct architecture communications artifacts are going to be more a lot of conversations where you're building consensus because your role as an architect in that position isn't telling people what to do, especially if those are people who actually know a little bit more about the space you're working in than you are as the person who's keeping everyone coordinated. Um, your role is making sure that everyone is on the same page about what is going to be done in a macro level, at why, at how that serves the business, at how that fits into the broader whole. And in that context, I think that being a little lower documentation, a little more emphasis on face-to-face or video chat conversations makes more sense than developing a, a huge communication artifact because there's a lot of nuance in, yes, I understand that you would prefer this way for theoretical purposes, but we can't do it this way because X other architectural constraint that you didn't know about because you're not working holistically on the entire system. That, that kind of thing works much better when you're actually talking to a person than when you're just delivering this directive from on high.
0: Right. So you have this back and forth between the person who has the grand vision, the director or the set designer, and the people who have to carry out individual pieces of it right actors for example so you might have an actor wondering why they why they need to be in a particular place at a particular time which might be the director or the set designer's vision but then you also might have the actor saying like i can't move that quickly yeah without injuring myself cuz there's <laughs> going to come both top down and bottom up
1: and sometimes the actor is going to be saying that not not only because they can't move that quickly which is like a thing that you need to respect but because for some reason their gut is telling them no this is wrong this doesn't work and then the fruitful conversation you need to have with that actor is like why they're feeling that like maybe the movement feels very inorganic to them but because it serves a greater need they need to keep on doing it and just deal with it but maybe they are having a piece of intuition that needs to be brought up and will actually serve the play really well after it's been brought up. And maybe they shouldn't actually be moving that way. And you can't know until you talk to them.
0: Yeah. So that's interesting. I don't know that I've, I think that's a, 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 a way of looking at it that I haven't really thought about before where you, where you have individual, you know, in the software world, you have people whose job it is to sort of advocate for the work that they're currently doing and people whose job it is to advocate for the greater whole. And those are going to be intention sometimes but they could be intention either way they could be they could it could happen in both cases like the client's going to advocate for what the client wants the database developer is going to advocate for the needs of the database i'm going to advocate for probably I, the joke didn't come fast enough <laughs> Uh, But yeah, but that's a sign of a healthy team, though, or at least it can be that everyone Mm -hmm. feels like they can advocate for their peace and that there's there's a mechanism for uh, having those all of those individual perspectives merge with a global perspective to produce something better.
1: And I think the difference there, right, is the difference between can advocate for their peace and must advocate for their peace like. I see what you're saying about it can be unhealthy, and I think that that happens when people get so desperate and they feel like their voice isn't going to be heard unless they dig in their heels about their one specific piece, and that's very destructive. But if they can feel confident and safe that when they say, yo, this doesn't feel good to me why are we doing things this way? It's going to be taken as them sending up the signal from the line. And we're going to have a conversation now because everyone's perspective is valuable. Then that's a super productive conflict.
0: I agree. (laughs) So you have that trade off between the top level and the bottom level. and, And sometimes in a theater world or sometimes in a software world that gets framed as a distinction between purity and reality how do you approach that? How does your your set designer experience help you approach that?
1: Right. And so I think that this is actually something where my theater training has served me well throughout my career as a software engineer rather than just as I worked as an architect. One of the things that when I was being formally trained in theater, our professors kept on emphasizing to us is that your role isn't to make art. Your role is to tell the story. If something doesn't serve telling the story, if something doesn't serve the craft of getting what is going on with these, char- with these characters in this place, uh, in this time, across as effectively as possible, then it's you going off on a piece of artistic nonsense and you should probably... Not do that because it's you being pretentious rather than doing your job, which is telling the story. The audience can, in fact, pick up on these things, whether you have a bunch of pretentious artistic stuff in the way. One of the things um, when I was talking about this topic with my co-founder, Jennifer, actually, that she brought up was that until I had explained this metaphor to her, she had never quite understood why she liked the scenery at her local repertory theater a lot more than she had liked the scenery that the college productions she'd seen at MIT had been or had done. Because the college productions at MIT had typically been better budgets and had been much flashier pieces of scenery. But they were flashy pieces of scenery, and that was the problem. They were MIT theater nerds trying to develop interesting pieces of engineering rather than people trying to do things that might be incidentally clever, but existed in the service of the story. I would
0: imagine you get some unique kind of theater nerds at MIT theater production.
1: <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, right?
0: Well, as software developers, like there's always that, that sort of tension of like, do we try the new thing? Do we do this clever, clean code trick? Do we try to make this uh, code as concise as possible? All of these kinds of like decisions that don't necessarily serve the end product, but serve to let us show how clever we are to other developers.
1: Right. And some of that's honestly healthy, I think, right? Like you need to keep up with the field and to some extent, like to some extent, you can take this much too far very fast. Making choices that let you grow as a software developer serves the product indirectly because it means that later on you have a larger toolkit with which to address product problems. But fundamentally, your role is to build the product, is to fulfill whatever need your customers or clients have sought you out to fulfill. And technical choices that don't contribute to that aren't.
0: Yeah, we have that tension all the time here where where our clients generally are uninterested in our technical choices. Uh, We try to keep them in things that have rich infrastructures, but we need to move ourselves forward and our technical skills forward to protect against the next thing.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you're setting the client up with the best of yesterday's technology, then you're not actually serving them, but it's a tension.
0: Well, Betsy, uh, I'm really glad that I finally got a chance to talk to you about this. Um, I have been looking forward to this for a while. Yay. (laughs) Can you tell people where they can reach you online?
1: Yeah, I can be found on the internet at Betsy the Muffin on Twitter and at BetsyHable.com. And the company I just co-founded is Cohere, uh, WeCohere.com. You can sign up for a newsletter there. I recommend it. There's a lot of my writing as well as my co-founders there.
0: Great. Thank you very much for being on the show. Tech right is a production of TableXI and is hosted by me, Noel Rappin. I'm at Noel Rapp on Twitter, and TableXI is at TableXI. The podcast is edited by Mandy Moore. You can reach her on Twitter at TheRubyRap. Right can be found at techdonewrite.io or downloaded wherever you get your podcasts. You can send us feedback or ideas on Twitter at tech underscore done underscore right. TableXi is a UX design and software development company in Chicago with a 15 year history of building websites, mobile applications, and custom digital experiences for everyone from startups to storied brands. Find us at tablexi.com where you can learn more about working with us or working for us. We still do have job listings opening as I open as I record this. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode, of Tech Done Right.